I'd like to reflect a little bit more upon this third way of establishing mindfulness in citta. The world of our moods and our mental states. The language in the Satipatthana Sutta about reflecting on moods I think is quite significant because it really speaks about how the mind is affected, the mind affected by agitation, the mind affected by calmness, you know, the mind affected by aversion, you know, the mind affected by contractedness, the mind affected by stillness. I mean, it's one, what is really being pointed to, as we've spoken about, is this, this mind of the moment taking shape dependent upon a number of different factors. So it's very clear that, as Jonas said, we're always in a mood. Many of them are quite lovely and many of them can be quite difficult. We tend to notice the lovely ones much less because they have quieter voices, whereas the difficult moods or mind states tend to register so strongly because they have very loud voices. The reason I think this is so significant in our own development, not only in our our formal practice, but in our life, is because it's really seeing how our moods very often just become our world. You know, that we perceive the world through the lens of our moods, we interpret the world through the lens of our moods, we react to the world through the lens of our mood. You know, this is actually, our, our life is often guided by by mood. It's really important also to make the linkage between mood and feeling tone or Vedana, you know, how an unpleasant Vedana can trigger a mood so quickly and how an unpleasant mood actually shapes Vedana tone. Actually shapes Vedana tone. You know, if, if there's an unpleasant mood, I'm going to see, you know, that which has maybe previously been seen as pleasant suddenly is perceived in a very different way. So it's, it's, it's important to see that linkage. You know, you go out to your walking period, you know, and the low mood, you know, another walking period, you know, and then a little bunny hops across your path, you know, and, oh, you know, you can feel the mood, you know, just lift, you know, and then, uh, and then you, you know, you very happy for a bit, you know, and then, yeah, yeah, actually, you know, maybe you see uh, the bunny's got an injury, you know, and oh, you know, and, and you see this, how these Vedna tones are actually shaping, also contributing to shaping the mood of the moment. Of course, it is so, it's so important to really develop a kind of inner literacy, as we said in the question period about the mood or the mind state of the moment. And this is a a practice, it's a process of developing that literacy, you know, of learning just to to pause at the end of a sitting. Ah, what is the mood just now? What is the mental state right now? To pause at the beginning of your walking path. Ah, what is the mood just now? To really see, you know, some moods at the end of a sitting might mean you never get to your walking path, you know? Changing moods during your walking period might mean you don't stay in your walking path. So the shifting of moods is not just about noticing. Sometimes it is actually moods are shifted by intention and by sustaining intention in a, in a behavioral way. In a, in a behavioral way. 
I learn to walk through my moods. Now, I think it's so important to see these feedback loops that get set up by moods, you know, the mood-producing thinking that is very much aligned with the mood of that moment, thinking, feeding back to strengthening mood, to producing more thought. But I think something else gets added into that toxic feedback loop because every time you go around that looping, moods, thoughts, deeper moods, more thoughts, you can actually feel the contractedness of mind coming and very often the contractedness of body coming. The, the world of our mind is getting smaller and smaller. It's shrinking. And something, this is with difficult moods. We don't have this problem with lovely moods because they're actually not productive, as Chris said. You know, They're not big producers, generators of thoughts. But moods are self-builders. Moods and narrative combined, these are self-builders. You know, and you can see as you go around that loop of thoughts, moods, reinforcing each other, how what gets added into this mix quite quickly often is the I am. You know? I am anxious, you know, I am obsessive, you know, I am aversive. You know, and, and so that you really begin to sense of this self-building nature of this combination of mood and thought. And I'm sure you have seen this in many of your clients that you teach. You know, How did we end up with that view of who I am? And, of course, it, it, the, the, the thing about the, these, these, this contracted mind, it, it has a certain element of amnesia to it. Isn't it. When I'm really caught in that contracted mind, you know, dwelling, proliferating you know, feeding each other. We have entirely forgotten that the mood at breakfast time was entirely different, you know, or that, you know, this might shift in a moment. This is my world, you know, that feels pretty perpetual, you know, and permanent. Yeah, let's be permanent. So there's many, many different ways that we learn, actually, to sort of begin to read the mood of the moment. The body, of course, as we mentioned, is a huge ally, you know, what is the mood, the moodedness in the body. Developing this literacy through attending to the mood of the moment. One of the big clues is often behavioral. You know, if I find myself, you know, at the end of a sitting, racing around the house, or, you know, absolutely chained to the notice board, waiting for it to become animated, <laughs> you know, it, it's probably a big clue, you know, that there's a mood going on here, you know. Um, it, you know, so very often it, it's behavioral. Um, sometimes a very clear clue to the mood of the moment is the continuum of a qualitative level of thinking. You know, and in Buddhist psychology, you know, I think if there's one word in Pali, everyone should learn, it's this word, papancha. It rolls off the tongue. And the reason I say it's helpful to learn this word prapancha because the translation of it is pretty long-winded. You know, it's the proliferation of thinking shaped by underlying patterns and moods that distorts our capacity to see things as they actually are. <laughs> it's this papancha. Now, we may not know the word, but we certainly know the experience, don't we? So sometimes it's a, the, continue, the, the kind of theme... Uh, the, the mood theme within this papancha proliferation of thinking also is, is, 
is almost a clue to step back and say, ah, what is the mood behind that proliferation? You know, and in Buddhist psychology, you know, it's, it's not a, like there's a huge number of threads of this papancha, you know. There's craving-based papancha. Think about it, you know. All the stories we write based on discontent, often based on a mood of discontent. The stories we write about the better moment and what I need and what's for lunch, you know, and, you know, what I'm doing on my vacation and who I need to become and, you know, the craving-based papancha which has this other side of dosa-based papancha, aversion-based papancha. It's a pretty sticky one, isn't it? You know, how many times have I obsessed about that colleague who insulted me at work, you know, or, uh, you know, the situation in my life, or, you know, the disappointments I've had. You know, the aversion-based papancha that begins to build these stories. Under that umbrella is also fear-based papancha, anxiety-based papancha, my fears about the future, my fears about the next moment, my fears about what might happen in my life, you know, the stories that we build around that. There's view-based papancha, you know, this is about all the, the, the kind of ideologies we hold within ourselves very deeply about how the world is, about how life is, you know, our political views, our social views, our, you know, all of the views, our world views. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's uh, self mana based papancha, which is really about the story of me, and we can spend quite a lot of time in that one, can't we? Um, you know, my difficulties, my imperfections, my who I am, you know, my descriptions, my definitions, you know, uh, you know the T-shirt that says it really actually is all about me. Um, you know, we don't necessarily wear the t-shirt but we sort of carry the flag inwardly you know so it's actually beginning to really see you know how these threads are actually almost indicating to us these are clues these are clues what is actually going on on a mood level and to recognize that moods do not have an independent self-existence If moods are not surrounded by craving or aversion, if moods are not surrounded by identification, they will arise and pass like all things. They do not have an independent self-existence and they rely upon being fed. And sometimes it's a good question to ask ourselves, what is keeping a mood in place? What is keeping this mood in place? So no, it's, 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 it's something is feeding it. In some way, it's being fed. And, of course, what is feeding the mood is, is the belief systems and, and often the proliferation of thinking. It's quite useful to ask, what is keeping this mood in place? It's interesting, isn't it, you know, how in, um, for example, in, in NBCT training, you know, working with the Pleasant Events Calendar, is actually beginning to actually see that there are options, you know, that actually can shift your intention and attention, and that will shift the mood of the moment, very often. So what is keeping the mood in place? Because what we see, that moods, when they are very, very repeated, very, very often, actually turn into patterns, they actually turn into patterns, into psychological, emotional patterns. 
Patterns don't just arrive ready formed, our psychological habit patterns. They are actually born of the, often of the repetition of moods. And it's, it's, the, it's the way the kind of third and fourth way of establishing mindfulness have a, have a certain kind of interface. Because what you actually see in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness is, you know, what is it that obstructs us being awake? What is it that obstructs that peace? What is it that obstructs our capacity to sustain intention? You know, what is it that undermines our well-being? And you know, in, in Buddhist psychology, again, it, it's a kind of universal story. You know, it's not just about my story, what happens for me. It's actually kind of a universal story. And we look at the patterns that undermine intention. Um, you know, and again, it's, it's the familiar visitors of the craving for sensual pleasure. Now, that doesn't look initially like a mood, does it? But there's a lot of agitation within the craving for sensual pleasure. There's a lot of behavioral activity. And there is often a mood of discontent underneath it. You know, they're going to cover up. You know, there's a, the, you know, we repeat discontent often enough, and it turns into a patterning system. You know, the, 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 the hindrance factor, you know, or the obstructive factor, veiling factor of aversion. Well, we know this as a mood, don't we? It's a very recognizable mood. In, um, sleepiness and dullness, you know, this again, it's, it's a state of mind. It's, it, it is a mood that gets repeated often enough. Agitation, restlessness and worry, you know. We can see the mood factor in that habit pattern. And, you know, the hindrance pattern of doubt. Well, that doesn't always look like a mood, but if we look at the mood within it, it's very much one of confusion. And, you know, of course, what we see with the hindrance patterns is that they disable intentionality. When intentionality is disabled, aspiration gets disabled, you know, sense of possibility gets disabled, energy and effort gets disabled. You know, so we actually see the importance of beginning to see how this linkage is working between moods and moods that are repeated that actually become then almost like a almost like a default mechanism and certainly a personal description turn into a personal description the I am this you know, I am this kind of person which actually often sets off its own agitation doesn't it I don't want to be that kind of person who has those kind of experiences you know? so beginning to actually really have a sense of this again it's not about turning it into a project but many moments of pause in a day where we just stop and ask ourselves, and it might even be in transitions at moments, it might be in moments when we actually see, you know, I'm actually moving from my walking path. It doesn't mean that we have to stay on our walking path forever. It can be perfectly valid reasons for moving for our walking path, by the way. Um, you know, but when we actually see the more the impulse moments, the impulse moments, the more reactive moments, you know, where it's not an intentional, oh, I, I need to go to the bathroom, it's like I'm running up the hill. You know, looking at the impulse moments, um, taking those moments of pause in transitions, it's developing a kind of literacy inwardly, not a verbal literacy, a, a, a literacy of knowing. Literacy of knowing. Ah, this is 
what sadness feels like. This is what anxiety feels like. Ah, this is what agitation feels like. And learning to sustain intentionality within those changing moods and patterns, of course, is a lesson for our lives because it's the greatest frustration in our lives is the difficulty and the challenge of sustaining intention. It's easy enough to have intentions, hard to sustain them, and they because of, their, of the way that they're hijacked. So learning to sustain intentionality, to know a mood as a mood, so crucial. Yeah? To know a mind state as a mind state. You know, in a way, in, in that simple knowing that is so pointed towards in the teaching, we are really stripping the mood of the moment of the I am. It is a mood. We are stripping the mood of the moment of the I am. Then it becomes much more approachable, and we may even be able to ask, what does this mood need? What would be helpful? Is it, is it more kindness? Is it cultivation of more spaciousness? In it? Is it the cultivation of more sustained intentionality? Is it more coming to the body and knowing the body of the moment? We can even ask, what does this mood need? Not to fix it, but to see that the way that particularly difficult moods tend to suffocate or mute or, or deaden that capacity for the loveliness to emerge. Okay, let's take some time to sit, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs>